0: I don't know if you've had this experience or not, but you, you're, you're in a moment and, and you're, you're there and, and it just kinda seems like a normal moment or, or maybe it's not so normal, but it's not until well after that moment has passed and you're reflecting back on it that you realize something of significance happened. I don't know if you've had that experience where you, you almost wish there was like a warning, some kind of light that would go off, some, some thing that would pop up on the, the screen in front of your eyes. The, these types of things may happen before long, who knows? But that would tell you hey, goofball, this is a significant moment, pay attention. Many times it's not until you're looking back that you realize, wow, that, that was really significant. Maybe this is the reason some of us take pictures of everything or videos of everything so we don't miss any of those supposed significant moments. One of those for me happened when we were in Senegal and we were in the, our, our living room. It was hot. I can remember I was sweating because uh, not only was it hot, but I was trying to teach in French, which was always a reason to sweat profusely. We had been going through a class or we we're going through a class with these students on how to study God's Word. And so we had been working through that and, and we had wrapped that session up and they were just sharing some. And I don't remember all of how we got there, but I can remember one of the young men who had come from a Muslim background was there and he began sharing. He he liked to share. And uh, you know, time there you have all the time in the world. So it was long, but I, I can remember him talking about. How difficult it was for him, when he had placed his faith in Christ, to put away his, what they called, grigris. Grigris were emulets. They were bracelets and charms and things they wore from the time they were children. And they offered them protection. Protection from evil spirits. And they would wear them all of the time. And I can remember him talking about the difficulty, although he had placed his faith in Christ, to take those things off. And he specifically was recounting the first time he dared to leave his village without wearing any grigrees. Without wearing any of these amulets. And how much of a step of faith that was for him. Well, I'm just going to leave that there with you and we'll come back to it as we continue in our study of 1 Corinthians, we are obviously getting into a new subject matter. And, of course, you have a new new preacher, a different bald guy, preaching this section. But we're going to continue as Justin has been walking us through 1 Corinthians. So we've we got some new things going on in this section, but it is the same letter. This, there, there's the same theme as the Apostle Paul seeks to direct a, a messy church back to the gospel and its implications for body life. Now if you remember back in chapter 7 in verse 1, the Apostle Paul is addressing issues that the Corinthians wrote him about. So we're we're jumping from issue to issue, and and we've had some issues that we can relate to. Sexual immorality, marriage, singleness. Those are things we we can kind of connect with. But this morning, we have this this break. If you remember verse 1, as as Ron read this morning now concerning food offered to idols. Now, I'm trying to survey all of you, look at all of your faces. Some of you look down every time I make eye contact. Uh, But I'm looking around and I'm imagining that while you could relate to singleness or marriage and those types of things, I'm kind of guessing that no one this week went to a temple and had a feast where food was offered to an idol, and so you're going, man, this speaks to me right where I'm at. I mean, I've really wrestled with this this week. Now, you know, married couples, we're not talking about the meal that was burned this week and offered to you anyways. That, that doesn't count. Yeah, this is a little different for us. This, we have to, we have to step out a little bit. We have to understand a, a little bit uh, more of what's going on here in Corinth and it's going to take a little bit of work. I, I want to mention this before we dive into this is that there is, there is some cultural difference here that's going to be helpful for us to identify and, and I'll just simply say this in American culture more and more religion is pushed to the margins of life. It's a private thing and, and I'm not going to go into all of that but it, but it just moves more and more that way And so uh, it's helpful for us to know that and to be reminded that in Corinth it was not that way. So life, public life, political life, business life, social life, was all mixed with religion. And it will be important for us to have that in mind as we walk through this passage. Well, what I want to do is I want us as we walk through this passage to understand, first of all, try and grasp what the Corinthians were saying to Paul and then we'll look at Paul's responses. And, and what we want to see, what we ultimately want to arrive at is, is what I told you I would title this message in this section with tattooed with love. Well, let's see, first of all, this, the Corinthians' idea. And this is how I would sum it up. Having spent a lot of time in this passage this week, this is what I would sum up the Corinthians were saying to Paul. They were saying this. We know that idols aren't real because there is only one God. And we know that we are free in Christ. So, we can eat meat offered to idols. And what's more, we can eat that meat in the temple of those idols. Now, that may sound crazy, but let me break it down for you. I think the first part is pretty clear. They start out by asserting this fact that we know uh, we have this knowledge or we possess this knowledge. Verse 1 tells us that. Now you'll notice in verse 1 if you have the ESV that there are quotation marks here. And they're doing some interpretive work for you. They're trying to help you understand what parts uh, Paul is quoting back to these Corinthian believers. These were things that they're saying appeared in that original letter that we don't have. And I think that quotation marks should be around that that whole statement. We know that all possess knowledge. I think that's what Paul is saying. These Corinthians were saying this to him. We know that all possess knowledge. You'll notice that as he continues there and says, this knowledge, that knowledge is again in quotation marks. This knowledge puffs up. What is this knowledge that they have? What, what, What are they talking about here? What we've seen as we've walked through 1 Corinthians that this church had an issue with boasting. Boasting in a lot of different things. They also had kind of a messed up view of what it meant to be a growing Christian or a mature Christian. And we find that case again here in this issue of knowledge. I think that the knowledge that these kind of elite group of believers think they have is a spiritual knowledge. In fact, as we move through this letter of 1 Corinthians, we're going to run into spiritual gifts. And some of these spiritual gifts are gifts uh, connected with knowledge. So later on in chapter 12 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul will write and say, for, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. I think there's, there's good reason to believe that this knowledge they believe is spirit-given knowledge and maybe even a gift of the spirit that's been given to this elite group. They have this understanding. What is that understanding? What is this knowledge about? Well, as one commentator put it, it's, it's a special understanding of how to live and practice the Christian life. So here's this, this group, and they're saying to the Apostle Paul, all of us, of course, possess this knowledge. I mean, anyone who's really anyone, all of us possess this knowledge. Well, what was that knowledge? I think there were essentially two things that they they thought the Spirit had given them that they had figured out. The first is simply this, that there are, there's only one God, so idols aren't real. Right? Verse 4, this is what they say. Therefore, as to food offered to idols we know again i think that's all part of the, the the quote from the corinthians we know that an idol has no existence and that there is no god but one well of course that was true there's only one god this comes from deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 the shema of israel right that that, that hero israel the lord our god the lord is one so are, are they right is there only one god well Sure, there's only one God. Yes. Then they're taking that knowledge of only one God and then they're connecting it also with freedom in Christ. Now, this isn't something that they directly quote in this chapter, but it seems to be an underlying theme throughout. It comes out most clearly in verse 9 when the Apostle Paul talks about, but take care that this right of yours... They thought they had a right, a right because they knew, having been taught the gospel from the Apostle Paul, that they were not bound to anything other than the clear commands of God's word. And nowhere did it command that they could not eat food offered to an idol or go to the temple of an idol. And so they said, hey, there's only one God, these idols aren't real, and. And we're free in Christ, so we can go to the the temple. We can eat food offered to idols. I think it's important to understand that not only did they think this way for themselves, but they thought all growing believers should exhibit this type of knowledge. They thought their knowledge was what gave them position, status. So we see that in verse 1 when the Apostle Paul says to them, this knowledge puffs up. They were inflated by this sense of knowledge that they had. Anyone who's a really growing believer, who's really mature, the one who's arrived will think like we think because we've received this from the Spirit of God. And of course, if they think like we think, they'll do like we do. Okay, so we've got that part. We understand what these Corinthian believers were writing to the Apostle Paul. Well, now we come to Paul's correction. And I'm going to say that there's some light correction and then there's some very firm correction by the Apostle Paul and try and break it down that way. So let's just start with that light correction. And Paul starts out by giving some light correction, if you will, to this idea that there is only one God. So in verses 4 and 5, look there with me. This is what Scripture says. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth. So initially, the Apostle Paul, I think, is agreeing with them. Yes, you are right. There is only one God. And Throughout the Old Testament, you see this that there is only one God, and in the Old Testament, whenever idols are compared with God, like in Isaiah 40, the prophets would say those idols are nothing. But that's not all. Verse 5 continues and says, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Now what is Paul saying here? What is he trying to tell them? Well, just like in the Old Testament, when God, God was compared with idols, the the message is over and over again, those idols are nothing. There is also this warning from those same prophets when Israel would think to then engage with those idols to be careful because what was behind many of those idols was demonic influence and power. I think what Paul is saying here is what he will say clearly later on in chapter 10 and verse 20 where he finally addresses clearly this whole issue of meat offered to idols and participating in these feasts that would happen in the temples in 1 Corinthians 10:20 Paul says I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offered to demons and not to God I do not want you to participate with demons. So Paul's little first correction here is to say this, hey, while compared to God these de- these these idols are nothing be careful Because there are principalities, there are powers, there are dominions at work in the world and you are availing yourself to them in your participation in these activities. And he continues, but for us, verse 6, it's a very sharp contrast. For us, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all th- are all things and through whom we exist. Now just as a, as a side here, we, we spend some time with the students going through a series on the Trinity. And I think sometimes in our minds, uh, we think that the Trinity is this huge theology that's supposed to stay way lofty and, and something for once you've got all of your life together and you're really deep in the faith, then you can maybe attain to a study of the Trinity and to the, the fact that we serve a three-in-one God. I just want to note the fact that, that all throughout the, this letter to a messy church with really practical problems, the Apostle Paul keeps pushing forward the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. And he does it here, placing God the Father and God the Son side by side and drawing implications from it. Well, what is, what is Paul saying? He's, again, he's correcting them a little bit, and he's saying, Yes, you're right, Corinthians. There is only one God, but... <clears throat> Here's what you need to remember. That God doesn't exist for you. You exist for Him. You exist for Him. There is one Lord Jesus Christ, and it is because of Him that you have life. When He he says that, that we exist because of Christ, I think that existence is new life, that being born again. They were alive in Christ. How? How? because of what Christ had done, not because of what they had done. It's almost exactly the same type of thing that Paul says in a parallel passage in Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8, where he words it this way, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Paul's reminding them, if there is one God, then you exist for Him. It's not He who exists for you. He says it in a slightly different way in verse 3. And I love it, when I first began reading through this chapter and studying it, verse, verse 3, kinda, verses 2 and 3 were just kind of out there, and I was confused on, on what they were about, but now the beauty of them, it just, it just stands out so clearly. Paul says in verse 3, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul says to them, listen, here's the thing, Corinthians, here's what's more interesting. What's more interesting is not what you know and the knowledge that you possess that you're so puffed up about, but if you really understood that there is one God who created everything and everything exists for him, what would amaze you is not what you know, but that he knows you. That would amaze you. Verse 2, he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know, right? He's pulling out this wisdom idea that true knowledge understands how little it knows. Alistair Begg puts it this way, knowledge is passing from ignorance to knowing we are ignorant. Albert Einstein is famously quoted as saying, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. This is true knowledge, right? When we understand something, we begin to understand how little we understand. The more we learn of something, really learn of something, we begin to realize how limited our knowledge is. How many times have you been watching one of those nature shows, and even if you don't agree with the expert that's on the screen who's saying things that that maybe, maybe about the earth being bajillions of years old and all those things, with all of their study and learning, what do they constantly say? We're just beginning to understand. This part of creation or that part of the world or this part of the human body or that part of the stars. We're just beginning to understand because that's what true knowledge looks like. It's an understanding of how little I understand. So all throughout Proverbs, there's this idea that it's the wise man who seeks wisdom. Why? Because as Proverbs 9.9 says, if you instruct a wise man, he becomes wiser still. Still. What's the principle here? I would would say it this way. This correction from Paul is this. A growing believer is amazed by the fact that God knows him, not by what he knows about God. A growing believer is amazed by the fact that God knows him, not by what he knows about God. It's known not knowing. He's correcting them in this way. Well, then we move to the second part of Paul's light correction for these Corinthian believers about this issue of being free in Christ. Now, of all of the apostles, of all of the New Testament writers, of course the apostle Paul is not going to undercut freedom in Christ. Right? This is Paul. This is the one who was oftentimes uh, accused of preaching a gospel that was anti-law that if people followed the gospel that Paul preached, they would just go crazy and they they would have nothing to hold them back. So Paul's not going to come in here and undercut freedom in Christ. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul commands when freedom in Christ is being undercut. He tells those believers there, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It was so important to the Apostle Paul because freedom in Christ was connected to justification. That we have been declared righteous through the completed work of Christ, and there is nothing else that needs to be added to that. And so Paul's not going to let this go. John Calvin, in his Institutes of Christian Religion, says that Christian liberty is an appendage to justification. So Paul here is not going to call them back from freedom in Christ or excuse me, call them away from freedom in Christ, but he's going to call them back to it. See, Paul understands that liberty in Christ can be, can be abused. So in verse 8, he, he reminds them of this. Look there with me. He said, food will not commend us to God. We are not worse off if we do not eat and better off if we do eat. Well, what is Paul saying well, he's reminding them that, that liberty can easily become law. You, you see, if I can put it this way, if, there, if, there's a, if there's a pathway of grace, of liberty in Christ, then there are ditches on both sides of that pathway. And the ditch on one side are those who have a list of these are all the things we don't do, and that commends us to God. And when Paul uses that word commend, it means to, to be able to stand so they say, we don't do all of these things, and because we don't do all of these things, it makes us able to stand before God, and, and we could get lost in all of those don'ts, right? I don't, whatever, in, in, in Corinthian culture, maybe it was food offered to idols, maybe in our culture, it's drink, it's get tattoos, it's wear certain clothes, it's watch certain movies, it's, yeah, the list could go on and on and on, we could list all of these things, I don't do these things, and therefore, it commends me to God. Then we hop up on the pathway of grace and we go, No, I'm free in Christ. Praise God, I'm free. But something can happen as we can overcorrect. And then we end up falling into the ditch that's on the other side that then says, It is my it is my using my freedom in Christ. That's what gives me standing before God. It's because I do these things that's what makes me, that shows that I really understand. That shows that I'm really growing in Christ. Right, when I was over there in that ditch, man, I was a moron. I used to think you actually had to pray before every meal. Can you believe that? What an idiot. Like, I mean, I actually felt guilty when I ate that McDonald's fry before we prayed for it. Concerned that it was gonna go down into my stomach and cause me to, I don't know, I don't choke or get sick or something. I mean, you, you guys smirk, but I thought this way when I was a kid. I mean, we prayed before every meal. You just, you did. You prayed before every meal, and people would joke, you ate a potato chip before we prayed for it? Whoa, you really, I mean, let's, let's, let's pray for that quick before it gets down in there. And that sin, sinful potato chip is lodged in your intestine. So I, I, you think that way, and you think, in some way, as silly as it sounds, in some way, as I'm growing up as a young Christian, I'm thinking that I am better before God because I pray for every French fry before I eat it, than those who would dare eat a meal, and not bless it. But then I realized, you don't have to pray before every meal. What? Are you kidding me? You don't have to pray before every meal. You can eat the potato chip unblessed and it's okay wow I am up here on the pathway of grace I am free in Christ this is amazing but then guess what happens then I'm out somewhere and I'm got my food and I'm sitting down at the table and I'm just chowing down and then I look over look at those look at those goofballs over there look at them all of them they're over there bowing their heads to pray before they eat don't they know you don't have to do that they're not as good as I, clearly they don't know their freedom that's in Christ. If only they were where I am. Realize, you can eat that fry unblessed. And it's hotter. She have not spent the time praying. A growing believer stands firm in his freedom in Christ, careful not to let liberty become law. A growing believer stands firm in his freedom in Christ, careful not to let liberty become law. It's liberty, not law. What should amaze me as I grow in the Lord is not what I know, but that I am known by God. And as I grow in the Lord, what, what, what I should be drawn to is, yes, to stand firm in my freedom in Christ, but to always be careful that that liberty does not become law. So let's be honest with one another here this morning that this is going to constantly be an issue and a struggle when you have a group of people who come together who have found freedom in Christ. That freedom is great and we don't ever want to take that freedom away. That freedom is fantastic. We are justified by grace through faith, and it is incredible, and we celebrate that. But when you get a community of believers together, there are going to be some who say do, and there are going to be others who say don't. And we can discuss those things, and we can be sharpened as we engage each other in those things, and have to articulate why we do or why we don't, and all of those things. But may we be very careful that we don't divide into groups. The group of the doers and the group of the don't doers. It's so easy to do. I find it a constant temptation for myself. I find some liberty in Christ, whether it be the movies that I watch, the TV shows, what I binge on Netflix or those things, what I drink, what I don't drink, the clothes that I wear, don't wear, and then it becomes this standard. By which I divide up people. Oh, they they, they wouldn't understand. They don't do those types of things. They aren't as free as I am. Baraka, stand firm in your freedom in Christ, but be careful not to let freedom, liberty, become law. These are the marks of a growing believer. Known, not knowing. Liberty, not law. Well, we think, okay, if these were the soft corrections, then what are the firm corrections going to look like? Well, let's go there. In chapter, uh, in in verse 7, I think we begin there. Verse 7, he says, However, not all of us possess this knowledge. Paul's correcting them, and he's saying, Listen, you think all of us possess this knowledge? Well, let me tell you, not all of us possess this knowledge. Who doesn't possess it? Well, he says, But some, through former association with idols, Eat meat as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, what's going on here? Well, this will help give us a little bit more of the picture of what I understand Paul speaking to. Paul's speaking to a very specific situation here. So that when he describes those who, are, who don't have this knowledge, these that are weaker, I think he's speaking to those who are new converts. He mentions there uh, in in verse 7, he says, but some through former association, that word former could be translated recent or just now. They've just now or just recently been associated with idols. So now when they see you engaged with idols and they're encouraged to go engage with idols and eat food as offered to idols, they're eating it as if it really were being offered to an idol. They lack this understanding. Another big part of this is that word conscience, and here I, I, I think that this understanding of the word conscience is, is more its basic meaning. It has come to mean, and what it, what it meant I think later on it is this idea of morals, that it's a moral compass, an understanding of right and wrong, but at this time, as best I understand it, it was that basic sense of just self-awareness consciousness that's what the original meaning of the word was that these it's not that they had a weak conscience in that sometimes as we think of this passage they they were saying it was wrong to eat meat offered to titles no they hadn't developed that yet they weren't self-aware they weren't conscious they were new converts they didn't understand and so being weak being unaware they end up being defiled I mentioned that story of that young man in Senegal sitting in our living room talking about uh, how big a deal it was for him to take off those amulets and leave his village without wearing them. So I want you to imagine if he's telling that story and then he looks over at me and he sees me wearing one of those amulets. Now maybe I bought it because a lot of people in Senegal wear them and they look really cool and some of them did look really cool. And so I bought it, I knew what it was, but I say to myself, those things aren't real. There's no power in those things. It's not gonna affect me. Plus, there's no command that says I can't buy one of those and wear it. I'm free in Christ. So I put it on, and I'm wearing it. And there's my brother, and he's talking about how much he struggled to take it off, demonstrating his trust in Christ, and then sees me wearing it. And I launch into this whole thing, rebuking him and telling him, if you understood that there's only one God, and if you just understood you were free in Christ, you wouldn't have thrown away all those cool amulets you wore. So then what is he tempted to do? Go back and put them on. And then in his mind, next time he goes to leave his village, while he still may be trusting in Christ, at the same time, he's thinking, but man, I sure am glad I get to wear these. Because just in case, you know, just in case, Jesus isn't looking my way and able to protect me, I've got these amulets on and they'll, 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 they'll fill in where Jesus is lacking. So in verse 9, Paul says, but take care that this right of yours, and there's a stark contrast there, and we don't have time to go into it, but Paul's been saying we, and then in verse 9, he separates himself and says, I'm not a part of this. This is all you guys. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols. Now, this is also important because I think this gives us a clue as to the specific context Paul's talking about. Nowhere in this passage does Paul reference just meat offered to idols in general in some other context where it's talking about meat being sold in the marketplace. What Paul specifically references is this meat being eaten in the temple of these idols. Now, this seems odd to us because we go, well, you wouldn't go to a, a religious place unless you wanted to, to participate in that religion and those things. But again, this is part of that cultural difference. There would just be normal communal life, feast, festivals, business, political things that would be happening in these temples. And there would be feasting that would take place with that. So the food would be there and that food would be offered to idols and then everybody would feast. the word that Paul uses here for eat is not just the simple word to eat. It wasn't like they got a to-go box. They didn't call Uber Eats and say, hey, there's free food at such and such temple. I'm not going to miss out on it. I can't be there, but I'll give you a really good tip. Go pick it up and bring it to me. No, it's the word to recline at table. They're at ease there. They're just marveling in their freedom in Christ. Here I am in this temple, and I'm feasting, and I'm enjoying the social life here in the temple eating this food offered to idols. So I think they're putting two stumbling blocks before their brothers. One is that they're encouraging their brothers to return to this idolatry in some way. And the second is that they're pressing them to hold this same elite supposed view or have this elite knowledge that they have. You see, it's almost like they're trapped on both sides. If they admit, hey, I'm weak. I don't think I could go back to the temple and participate in those things again. Well, then you're, you're lowly. You haven't come to understand yet. But then if they do participate, they, they find themselves stumbling because they want to trust again in these idols that they have just left. And so Paul says in verse 12, you sin against your brother Verse 11 says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. These are very strong words. They're sinning against their brother. Paul even goes so far as to say they're wounding their conscience was the idea of, of beating, of giving blows to their conscience. Instead of helping them become more aware they're, become, they're, 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 they're helping them become less aware, more confused. In fact, the word that he uses there, encourage, that comes in verse 10, is the exact same word that he uses in verse 1, when he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That's the way it should be. One well, verse 10, he, that word encouragement is that same word. He's saying instead of loving and building up, you're encouraging them to return to idolatry. And then he uses that very strong word in verse 11 where he says this weak person is destroyed. Elsewhere, when Paul uses that word, it means eternal damnation. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here because he calls them brothers and he says they are the ones for whom Christ died. But he's being very clear that this is severe damage that is being done to these weak Unaware brothers and sisters in Christ because of this supposed knowledge that you have. What's the principle? Well, I, th- I think it's, it could be summed up this way A growing believer places his trust in Christ and directs others to do the same. A growing believer places his trust, all of his trust, in Christ and directs others to do the same. So it's known not knowing, law, our liberty not law, and it's Christ not convictions. These, these supposed know-it-alls were pushing, they're directing these young believers to have more confidence in whether they do or don't eat than in Christ. And by so doing, they were encouraging them to return to idolatry. Well, lastly, and I think overall, is being tattooed with love. Love. So go all the way back to verse 1. Some of you are probably wondering when I was going to cover this. Verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, you know that this theme of love is going to continue to build until it reaches a climax in chapter 13. It's part of the reason that I think this knowledge is probably that they're talking about is probably a spiritual gift of knowledge that they have in mind because the issue of love for Paul and spiritual gifts that's where all that comes together in chapters 12 and 13. Paul is going to hammer this notion of love and why. Why? Because Paul's point to them is this. Above all of these things, the mark of the community of faith, above all of these things, the mark of a growing believer should be that of love. John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, not that you love love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are My disciples if you love one another. Later on, the Apostle John would write this in 1 John 4, starting in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This attitude of love is expressed by Paul the way he finishes this chapter out where he says in verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That attitude is going to move into chapter 9 where Paul's going to give a defense for his apostleship because he has dealt in this, with this loving attitude towards the Corinthian believers. We are set free in Christ to love. It is the very fact that we have been made free in Christ that releases us and gives us the opportunity to love. Do you understand that? Do you understand that it's because I don't have to do anything to be commended to God that I am commended to him solely based upon the completed work of Jesus Christ that now, now I am truly free to love because I can love you and not be using you to get me a standing before God. I can love you because my standing before God is absolutely secure. And now I'm free. Free to do what? Free to do the very thing I was created to do. Love God and love others. It's not something that we have to do, I think, is part of what Paul is saying in his mindset. Loving one another is not something we have to do in the Christian life. It is something that we get to do. It is a privilege that we have because of the freedom that we have in Christ. And so the principle would be a growing believer is tattooed from head to toe with love. Now, I picked tattooed on purpose, obviously. And what I want you to have in mind is not some cute little tattoo on somebody's ankle or some other place on their body where almost nobody sees it. What I want you to have in mind is that person who is tattooed all over their body. It's going up their arms. It's coming up their neck. Right, so when you watch them talk, you're watching the tattoo stretch and move, and you're trying to pay attention to them, but you're still distracted. That's the type of tattooing I'm talking about. It's covered every part. It's that tattoo that's so so distracting you, you. you can't take your eyes off of it. Every movement that they make just shows a new part of the tattoo, and you're, you're enthralled by it. It's going down their hands, on their fingers, it's on their face, on their bald heads. It's all over them. It's tattooing every part of them. You can't ignore it so as they move, you just you see it. Everything is it's tattoo. we should be marked by love in that way. A growing believer should be tattooed from head to toe with love. Every which way that we move, everything that we do, should be marked by the love of God. And as a community of believers, this is what should characterize us. So I'll ask you that question this morning, what what do you want to be known for? What do you want to mark your life? What do you want to be said about you? I can remember one time at Bible college, I was sitting with a professor that I really enjoyed, and, and, and I had this opportunity to go out to lunch with him. I can remember I was totally terrified. I couldn't think of the right questions to ask, and, and all the, but I finally asked him, you know, what do you want, what do you want to be known for? What 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 do you want when you're when you're done teaching and all of that? What do you want to be known for? And I will never forget his answer because I thought there would be tons of things he would say, and he says, I want, when I die and I'm laying there in that casket more than anything else I want people to say I was a lover of God I thought for sure he's going to say an amazing professor a great preacher I want to be known as a lover of God what do you want to be known for Baraka what do we want to be known for do we want to be known simply as a, a church that's good at expository preaching that has a major missions focus That's big on biblical counseling. We could go on and on in that list. It's not that any of those things are bad. But it is possible that we could do all of those things and not be marked by love. It's known not knowing. It's liberty not law. It's Christ not conviction. And it is love above all. As we interact with one another, this is what should dominate us. As we come to these issues of of conflict about conscience and these things, if we were more enthralled with the fact that God knows us than about what we know, that would go a long way. If we were committed to standing firm in our liberty in Christ and making sure that liberty didn't become law, that would go a long, long way if we were committed to pointing each other to Christ instead of to our own individual convictions, that would go a long way. And above it all, if we were tattooed from head to toe in love, that would go a long way. Brack of my prayer as I've worked through this passage this week more than that when I finish this you would know whether this week you were allowed to go out and eat food offered to idols or not I'm just gonna let that linger Paul will resolve that in chapter 10 Justin doesn't get off the hook More than I want you to know whether you can eat food offered to idols or whether it's okay if uh, this evening you have a glass of whiskey or wine or whether you go out this afternoon and get a tattoo or whatever all the other things are that we debate about whether it's morally right or wrong to do or whether there's freedom in Christ to do. Here's what I want you to be struck by and here is my prayer that we will be known as a community of faith, a local church marked by love. That when people come into this place, they will know that there is a love here that is totally different than the love of the world because we have been known by a holy God, loved by Him in Christ. His love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And we are never going to be the same. We show that love to one another, not just when it's easy, not just when the world is going our way, but in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of racial tension, in the midst of a government that seems like it's exploding, and society that seems like it's falling apart. We're tenacious in our love for one another. And it marks who we are in everything we do because we're tattooed with it from head to toe. And then we march out into this dying lost world and we love we love why because when we were rebelling against Christ when we were lost God moved towards us in love called us and saved us and so we March out and we lead not with our most clever arguments or our most exacting damnation of why the culture is a wreck. We move out in love. It marks everything that we do. May that be true about us. The only way it can be is for the Spirit of God to work in our hearts and to produce in us what we cannot produce on our own. No not knowing, liberty not law, Christ not conviction, and love above all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that your ways and your wisdom is far greater than ours. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you through the work of your spirit would produce in us that love. Love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and love for a world that is lost and dying and needs desperately to hear the good news that we have found in Christ. We pray it in his name, amen.